0: Well, church, last week, we talked about the calling of the first disciples, and that's great. It's, it's great to say, yes, I will follow you, but then what does that mean, and what does that look like, and how is that different than what you've been doing before? Those are the types of things that we're going to start talking about today, and we're going to do it by looking at this particular conversation. This was between the Pharisees and Jesus. We're actually in the same exact chapter that we were in last week, so this tells you how quickly we went from saying, yes, I'll follow Jesus, to trying to figure out, well, what exactly does that look like? So if you pray with me, we'll study the word together. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray, amen. So rules are rules are rules. That's just how it is. And some of the rules that we have, I I think at least, are absolutely necessary and vital to our safety. So for example, stopping at stop signs. I think that is a pretty legitimate rule. Not lighting a match at the gasoline station. Also a really good rule. But if you think about it, if you really thought about it, there are very few rules that are so important to life and death that by their very nature, they have to be totally devoid of grace. One rule that most elementary schools have, and and you understand why they have it, is that you need to keep your hands, feet, and other objects to yourself, right? So you've You've seen our little ones up here. You understand the thought process behind that rule. But what happens if you're walking back on the playground and little Susie trips on her shoelace and you can see that she is about to totally face plant right there on the concrete sidewalk, what do you do in in that moment? Do you instinctively reach out and grab your friend Or do you sit there and say, well, I would like to help, but there's rules, and the rule is you don't touch people, so bam. If we applied this type of rule mentality to things like engineering or aerospace, we would completely eliminate innovation. Nowadays, we fly around the world without giving it so much as a second thought. But when flying was first taking off, You could barely put one person in a plane, much less hundreds. If Boeing had decided that the Wright brothers had perfected flight, then the only trips that most of us would be taking in the air would be off the side of a sand dune. And then beyond that, just the whole idea of flight, the whole concept that we would put people in the air is far beyond what they were thinking when they only considered land and water transportation. Still, it's understandable why there would be some concern, some some confusion, even some outright angst about anything that totally defies the acceptable norms, the, the rules of how we do it, and especially something that is going to completely change life as we know it. So that's about where the Pharisees are this morning, as they're starting to begin to observe Jesus, and especially the people who are following Jesus, his disciples. So they said to him, John's disciples, like the disciples of the Pharisees, frequently fast and pray, but your disciples eat and drink. Now, fasting was and still is an extremely important part of the rituals and the practice of the Jewish faith. It's part of the purity codes, and it defines holiness among the Jewish people. And it's pretty strict. There's, there's exact hours and things that match up with sunset and sundown that, that you have to abide by. The Pharisees, who knew these codes and rituals better than anyone because they're the teachers of the law, the law is the Old Testament, they have, they have observed that Jesus' disciples are not behaving the way that the Pharisees think that they should. And I love how the Pharisees justify their concerns. John's disciples are doing it. Why aren't you doing it? But the truth is that Jesus didn't come to tweak the Jewish faith. He came to bring about something entirely new. So Jesus says to them, you cannot make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? The days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. See, what Jesus has initiated here is a celebration. This is a time of great joy. The same kind of of feeling that you would experience at a wedding. And throughout scripture, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom, and the church as the bride of christ so in those days of the early disciples when you had a wedding there was feasting for five or six days five or six days feasting is not compatible with fasting and so jesus acknowledges it's not always going to be this way it's it's not like it's it's always going to be one big party there are going to be times when fasting is going to be appropriate But this is not that particular time. So what this means is is that the Pharisees and the followers of John, they were so committed to their religious ritual that they missed out on the joy of celebrating a new faith that is being rooted in this relationship with Jesus. And I think about that a lot when we as a group share in communion together For those of you that that grew up in the church, you probably have some some thoughts in your mind about the processes that that we're supposed to go through for communion. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where, where you came to the kneeling rail and you drank directly out of the cup, or maybe you grew up with just wafers and the little plastic cups that go up and down the rows, or maybe your experience of communion is the way that we do it here by intention. I was trying to remember the first time that, that I took communion, and I have to confess to you I don't, I don't remember it because I grew up in the Presbyterian church, and, and we do not celebrate First Communion the same way that our Catholic brothers and sisters do, so I just simply do not remember for you that exact moment. What I do remember is the tradition of my church, and I remember this one time when somebody tried to substitute real bread for the little um, plastic wafer things, <laughs> that's, that's what I think they taste like. Um, somebody tried, tried to replace real bread, and um, that was scandalous, just, just scandalous. I'm not really sure communion took that day. But, um, but there are two times in my childhood where I distinctly remember communion. The first time was at summer camp. And it was the end of the week, and all of the campers were gathered at the top of Vesper Hill in the shadow of this enormous cross. And we all stood in a circle, and everybody got to come. The kids that had toilet paper, at the director's house, the kids that had put, um, put laundry soap in the pool, the kids that had taken everybody's dessert and flung them all over the field, everybody got to come. Nobody Nobody was excluded. And then the Reverend Bill Deutsch, the director of the camp, he he got up and he would talk about all of these experiences across the week and the things that we'd done. And he'd highlight the importance of these relationships that we had made at camp, but most especially the relationship with with Jesus. And so then we, we got to communion and everybody got to participate in communion, And in my 14-year-old brain, when I took communion that Friday night, I, I felt as though I belonged, that I belonged to Jesus, that I belonged to the universe, that I was a part of creation in a mighty way. It was a great source of joy for me and an overwhelming experience of love. Well, two years later, I was in the chapel of Loyola College, now Loyola University in Baltimore, for a private funeral mass for my Italian grandfather. And it was officiated by Father Daniel McGuire, who had known me quite literally since the moment I was born. He was in the waiting room at the hospital when I came into the world. He was one of my grandfather's closest friends And for years, every summer, they would take a joint trip to Ireland and Italy so that they could fight about who got Catholicism right. Right? Well, the time came for communion at this funeral mass, and my father, who was still Roman Catholic, walked up to receive the sacrament. I was sitting next to him, and I just got up too. And I went up, and I approached Father McGuire. And he turned away from me. And he turned the bread and the cup away from me. And my father, who hadn't realized that I had gotten up, turned and he saw my confusion and he led me back to my seat. And suddenly I felt very disconnected. Like I was saying goodbye to my grandfather from somewhere outside of the service to something that I didn't belong to in a place where I was not welcomed. And the hardest part for me, the hardest part for me was that the person who turned me away was someone who had known me since I was a child and was so influential and so developmental in my faith. But when push came to shove, ritual is ritual ritual and when there is a total adherence to ritual at all costs then relationship is in danger of being broken Jesus placed a higher value on relationship than he did on ritual and thus modeled for all of us what we now call grace grace does not exist in any of the other of the world's great religions And so what he was about to usher in with these new disciples was not a new and improved Judaism. It was a whole new way of faith. And in order to help them understand this, he told them a parable. He said, No one tears a piece from a new garment and sews it onto an old garment, otherwise the new will be torn and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And so no one, after drinking old wine, desires new wine, but says the old is good. This is one of those parables that you don't really learn until you just try it out firsthand. Wine was originally put into goat skins, and it would stretch the skin... To the limit, But unlike rubber that has an elasticity to it, once that skin was stretched the first time, not only did it lose its elasticity, but it became very, very brittle as the wine began to ferment. To put another batch of new wine into it would cause the whole thing to burst. Likewise, if you take a brand-new, never-shrunk piece of fabric and you try to patch it into an older garment, As the patch begins to shrink, it will rip apart the older piece. And it's not that these things don't each have a place and a value, but the purpose of being part of something new makes them incompatible. It would be like if Boeing decided to drop a 757 engine into Wright's original wooden airplanes. The point is that the new kingdom of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ is incompatible with the Old Testament. Jesus is not, is not condemning or dismissing the Old Testament, neither am I, but Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it or destroy it. So the Old Testament is incompatible with the New Testament, and yet they are intimately related. Christ comes out of that old covenant. The Old Testament is the foundation for the New Testament. So when we start to think about what that meant for the original disciples and and then for us as disciples today, there are some things that we need to lift up and remind ourselves of. Jesus Christ brings joy through relationship. Relationship. Remember, the whole point of God sending Jesus to us in the first place is so that we would know that God is with us. So we can experience joy when we fully understand that we are not alone, that we are loved, that we have eternal life in Christ. That joy lets us have freedom about our relationships because that joy is rooted in grace, meaning that we can operate from a place of grace with the people around us because that is how God has dealt with us. Therefore, no perfect people need apply. Religion is what you do, Faith is who you are. So if someone asks you about your religion, you are likely to say to them, well, I am a Christian, a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu. You might even go and clarify with a little subsection that you are a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, an Episcopal. And with each one of those descriptors, you know that there are some rituals that come with it. You pray five times a day towards Mecca. You go to confession twice a week. You take communion at the kneeling rail. But if somebody asks you about your faith, that's when you get to the good stuff. I believe in God the Father and in Christ his only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Do you see that difference? Religion invites ritual. Faith invites relationship. And what makes our faith so inviting is grace. It's knowing that in our imperfectness, God still loves us. When I was in seminary, we were required to take a worship class. It was basically how to. How do you you lead worship. And it was to teach us the rituals that, that we hold so dear as Presbyterians. And it was a very stressful class because it was extremely precise. And, and there was this one example where we all had to go and we had to stand behind the communion table. And um, we had to hold our arms at an exact angle to match the outside of our peripheral vision on both sides. Right? Because, because you know communion is not going to be effective unless I hold my arms exactly the way that it should. And the purpose of this is so that everybody from David to Barbara understands that they are invited to the table. So I, I want you to know the next time we do communion, I'm, I'm going to be sitting there with my peripheral vision trying to make sure that my arms are exactly at the right angle so that we get communion right. Well, the other thing that we did is um, we had to baptize baby dolls because, you know, nothing is as close to a real live squirming child as an inanimate baby doll. So, <clears throat> um, <laughs> so, so we, we did this. We, we did this. And um, I don't know what kind of delusional world they, they were living in in that classroom, But I can tell you this, the first time that one of these precious little human beings of God spit up her milk all over my very expensive liturgical robe, I had to make a decision between grace and ritual. And I want you to know that there is no robe on the planet that is worth so much to me that it is more valuable than seeing people and children come to know Jesus Christ and to be claimed as his very own. So I always get a kick out of when people come visit our church <coughs> from, from other churches, when, especially like when they were here for Presbytery. And they came in, and, and they have such a nice way of saying it. They'll say, oh, your sanctuary, it's uh, simple, <laughs> right? right? And, and, and what they're getting at is that we don't have a very ornate sanctuary. Um, we don't have a lot of decorations going on. Um, they, they're very confused by this. And, and I'm not confused about it because that's all just stuff. It's, that's all stuff. That's not the people. So when I talk about our church, I never describe it in terms of our buildings. I never once have talked about our church in terms of the way that we decorate or the traditions that we hold or the things that we do. I always talk about it in terms of the people because it's not about the rituals, it's about the people and the relationships, and when you are with people that you care about, people that God loves and that God cares about, the rest of it isn't worthy of all of that much consideration, which is why you have never seen me or Pastor Sung freak out when we do communion and one of the kids comes forward and takes off like a hunk of bread and walks away, or when one of the adults comes forward, and takes off a hunk of bread and walks away. We don't stress about that. We don't stress about it because here's what I know. Here's what I know, that these kids are growing up in a church that tells them that they are loved, that they are wanted, that God has a place for them in the kingdom. And by showing that to the kids of the church, we show it to the adults of the church as well. So I care very little about how we decorate. I care very much about how we treat people. So what does all of that mean for us then as disciples? It means that we constantly have to be asking ourselves, who are we following? Is it it Jesus? Because if it's Jesus, we've got to understand that Jesus chose relationship over ritual every single time. If you're trying to figure out how to reconcile the way that it's always been done with how Jesus would do it, then you go to the scripture before you go to the directory for worship. If you're concerned that you are not doing it just the right way, I want to assure you that you are not. You are not. But if you are making an honest attempt to follow Jesus, then his grace is going to cover it. And when it comes to how you relate to other people, choose relationship. Choose grace over ritual. Jesus did, and it changed the world. Let's pray together. Holy God, may we never be a people that choose ritual over other human beings. May we find ways to incorporate everyone into the grace of God so that they may experience it the way that we have in our own lives. We pray, Lord, that this would always be a place of welcome, that even though we don't get it exactly right, that we get it exactly faithful. Help us to see that difference as we make our way as disciples. In your name we pray. Amen.